0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This
2: is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Barischetti on ABC Radio WA.
3: Very good afternoon to you. Hope your day is going well. Good to have you here this afternoon. This hour, tens of thousands of cattle in northern Australia are no longer suited to the live export trade with Indonesia with exporters told not to ship any stock with skin lesions. We'll get into that shortly here on the Country Hour. And a little later this hour, after half past 12 today, heading off to the state's south coast, where some grain growers have only just finished seeding, which is very late in the season, considering growers in some parts of the state are gearing up for harvest. We'll find out what's going on along the south coast later this hour. Six past twelve here on the Country Hour. The National Chemical Regulator has banned the use of a pesticide called dimethoate as a post-harvest dip in tropical fruit like mangoes and avocados. The APVMA flagged the suspension earlier this year and has today made it official, publishing a notice of suspension in its gazette. The suspension comes just as the Darwin region's mango harvest starts to ramp up. The APVMa's acting chief executive, Dr. Melissa McEwen, says the ban has been imposed to protect human health.
4: So we've made the decision because it has been there have been detections of exceedances of the maximum residue limit in dimethylate in um, tropical fruit. What this means is that there's a potential human health risk from those exceedances. Maximum residue levels are set at a level where there is a tolerance gap, but by having having, um, the amount of residue remaining in the fruit exceed that, it does start to begin to eat away at that gap between that sort of safety margin. And so it's important that we continue to prioritise that human health in making decisions about the use of chemicals.
0: Was the APVMA seeing a lot of exceedance in, in terms of number of cases?
4: So we received a number of reports of cases out of testing before retail sale. What we then do is go back and have a look at the science to see whether the use of dimethoate in which ways using it is likely to actually cause the exceedances. And what our research and what our um, investigation determined was that they were most likely caused not by all uses of dimethoate but particularly by post-harvest dipping. So there are a number of other approaches to the use of dimethoate pre-harvest and so forth that can continue but this one approach seemed to be leaving leading to a number of exceedances that and really to be honest more than a couple is really not what we're looking for
0: okay so farmers can continue to use domethoate in some cases but not as a post-harvest dip
4: that 's correct, so there are a range of other label uses, but particularly pre harvest treatments and others that are fine the one the only use that we are suspending is post harvest dip for tropical fruits.
0: What are those other uses
4: post harvest dip is used for interstate trade to manage fruit fly protection. There is an alternative use where it is used ahead of harvest, and that still will be allowed. But what I'd recommend to growers who have dimethylate is that they have a look at the changes to the label usage and continue to use it in line with what is permitted post this suspension.
0: And does this uh, suspension have immediate effect? It will be in
4: effect from tomorrow, yes.
0: Mango growers in the Darwin region are harvesting right now, why did the apvma decide this was the right time to
4: make this call so we found out about the issues earlier this year and we've worked as quickly as we can to make a decision about whether we whether we needed to suspend or not and this was sort of the earliest that it was reasonable to make a firmly science-based decision. We thought it was important to make it straight away because there is a potential risk to human health in this situation that meant that we can't. We don't think it would be the responsible thing to do to leave it until later.
0: Some people the Country Hour has spoken with in industry haven't been too happy with the amount of consultation with regards to this decision. Do you acknowledge that communication with industry could have been better?
4: I think we've done quite a lot of work with industry along the way. I think people always would like to have more and sometimes what consultation, consultation can mean listening, but it doesn't actually mean agreeing and and that means that out of our process people are often not happy. We have consulted along the way um, with all of the affected industries and had, had uh, good conversations. But in the end, this decision has to be based on science rather than on people's views or economic impacts.
3: Dr Melissa McEwen, she's the Acting Chief Executive of the APVMA, speaking to Dan Fitzgerald about the fact that as of tomorrow, the pesticide dimethoate will no longer be allowed for post-harvest dipping treatments of some fruits like mangoes for fruit fly. 11 past 12. Callum Hutchison is a Darwin-based agronomist who works with the NT mango industry. He thinks the APVMA's decision is one growers will simply have to accept regardless of any short-term costs. But he thinks in the long run, it's actually going to benefit the horticulture industry.
2: Well, yeah, plain and simple. It means that growers won't be able to use dimethoate as a post-harvest treatment, um, which will limit their ability to send fruit interstate, places such as South Australia and WA. How big of a deal is it for for Darwin growers? Um, It'll have a pretty big impact on some growers. The bulk of our market probably sends fruit down to Sydney and Melbourne, but there will be growers that rely on those South Australian and WA markets that no doubt will be affected. Some growers have also outlaid a lot of money to put in Machinery that applies the dimethoate in their pack lines. Um, so, based on this decision, they're going to probably be out of pocket and a little bit upset. But yeah, ultimately, it's um, it's limiting where growers can can send their fruit.
0: This suspension of dimethoate as a post harvest dip it comes into effect tomorrow.
2: Are growers ready for that? Growers probably would have liked a little bit more notice. Um, it has been a hot topic for a number of weeks. Um, I know that some people are questioning the communication with industry. I think there was pretty good communication, although a few weeks isn't a lot of time to um, change practices, um, install the equipment that's needed, arrange to have fruit sent. Um, and there's a big cost associated with either you know, installing your own equipment or sending fruit to a facility that can do alternative treatments such as VHT or irradiation, those type of things. But that being said, there, there was pretty good. I attended the, the Mango Road Shows. EMU and Sons were fairly involved with the, with the Mango Road Shows a number of weeks ago. And for those growers that made the effort to attend, it was a topic of conversation and, and their feedback was, was um, sought after during those events. So there has been communication, but it's, um, it's still short notice and no doubt growers would have, yeah, in the middle of the packing season, they probably would have liked to be getting this, um, yeah, this season out of the way so they have a little bit more time to, to make alternative arrangements. So yeah, it's, um, it's a tough one for growers to, to navigate as we enter the peak of this picking season.
0: And we heard the APVMA say it uh, detected um, instances of where dimethylate levels were above exceedances. Um, What's your take on what's gone wrong there? Is that potentially farmers not following the the labelling
2: and the guidance? Uh, Potentially. There's fairly detailed instruction and guides on on how much dimethylate should be applied to fruit and growers should have the ability to really fine-tune the amount of insecticide they are applying to the fruit, so I can't comment on individual growers. But I imagine if um, if application has gone slightly too high, there that could be a reason that there is a higher loading of active on that fruit, and that's why it's being seen all the way through the through the packing line and transport into into the market. So I think human health and safety has to be prioritised. Uh, yeah, I would support a decision. It's not an ideal of time for growers, but moving forward I think more sustainable options would be would be welcomed in the industry as a whole.
0: And and what options are there for growers who do want to send their the fruit to markets where a fruit fly treatment is needed?
2: Well, like I say, I think as an industry we don't really want to be looking down the path of replacing dimethoate with another insecticide or anything like that. I think you know, being involved, whether it be in crop sprays or post-harvest treatments, I don't like seeing broad-spectrum chemistries applied that um, really upset the nature of the crop and also have human human health and safety implications. Um, I think it's up for industry to to come up with an alternative. With the advice from obviously stakeholders within the within the industry, um, growers, etc. Uh, but I, I'd support something more that looks at a, a certification system. So remember, the issue we're dealing with is fruit fly incurrence. So if we can look at some sort of system that growers are focused more on their in-crop hygiene, general farm hygiene, there's. St- options available such as trapping and monitoring bait spraying which is yeah far safer than using broad spectrum chemistries like dimethylate i think if industry and state can work together to come up with a yeah some sort of certification system where farms can get on the front foot about being free and and get a free from fruit fly sort of certificate in some way um i think that's a, a far more sustainable alternative in the way the industry should be looking at it
3: Callum Hutchison is a mango farming agronomist with E.E. Muir in Darwin and he was speaking to Dan Fitzgerald. 16 past 12. Meanwhile, on this side of the border in WA, mango growers in the Kimberley are cautiously optimistic that this ban on dimethylate as a post-harvest dip treatment, will free up their local market by slowing the amount of interstate fruit coming into Western Australia. Luke McMullen is a mango grower from the Ord Valley, and he's not surprised by the APVMA's decision.
5: So the mango market in Kununurra, so the, the mango fruit coming out of the Ord Valley region in general, is actually quite a small portion compared to... The overall supply um, from Australia, Um, we are a a fractional uh, supplier in the bigger picture Um, and the bigger supply is based in the Northern Territory and Queensland. Um, This is where the the biggest effect is felt by them. However, for us, uh, what it means is that um, ultimately a little bit less of the um, top-end fruit um, will be making their way into the Perth markets Uh, and if it does, um, it'll be coming in um, with a different treatment and I think that will have a, an adverse effect on how much volume comes through um, because of the added expense, um, and because of that there'll still be slightly less fruit making their way down to the Perth market.
6: Have you heard of any NT fruit still coming over despite having to pay for those treatments?
5: Yeah, anecdotally have um, been informed that there is still Darwin fruit making their way to um, Perth, that it has gone via South Australia and been fumigated, um, which is an approved uh, treatment option, and then made its way to Perth Market. So I am aware that um, it's happening in in small volumes, um, but I couldn't be sure on the quality and the the overall volume for it.
6: Is that an indication of just how good of a price mangoes will be fetching in WA for growers, that even in the NT, they'll be willing to cop that extra fee of transporting it and treating it in a different way and still wanting to send it into the WA market?
5: So I think um, over the past few weeks, we've certainly been um, discussing um, the overall um, volume of supply uh, nationwide for mango fruit. And it's becoming fairly apparent um, and it's no secret that um, we are not predicting a blockbuster season across Australia Um, and even the the top end growers as well will have volumes lower than um, years previous so um, we are expecting overall to see less trays throughout Australia uh, this year.
6: Is that the same for you here in Kununurra?
5: Absolutely yeah, um, we're just like everyone else, Um, we're expecting our numbers to be far down from previous years.
6: So while you're looking, I suppose, at good market conditions in that you've, you've got a bit of breathing room in your own market and you can hopefully fetch a good price for the fruit that you can get down to Perth, there's not, not a lot of it. Is that right?
5: Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Um, last year, we felt a bit of a, a chokehold um, in the market with um, an oversupply to a certain extent from the top-end growers um, as they tried to distribute um, their fairly large crop throughout Australia and we were in strong competition with them, um, which led to a a slightly reduced price um, overall. Um, And this year, um, initially, all the signs were indicating towards a decent crop. Um, We were feeling pretty positive about it. Um, All the indicators were looking very um, promising. However, it's just uh, slowly uh, slipped through our fingers, um, and we're just down on previous years, which is all part of the the overall game.
6: Have you got any indication of percentage wise how how far down compared to a quote unquote regular year
5: yeah no I hate to put a number on it uh and I won't but um yeah I'd say that we're we're drastically reduced in um in our overall number
6: what's what factors have led into that as you said it, it was looking promising a few months ago
5: it's one of uh one of the uh the industry's mysteries um what's happening here and I, I don't know anyone that can put their um put their doctorate or their uh, their finger on um, what's caused it. Uh, but it's certainly not a, um, a specific thing. Um, it's obviously Australia-wide. Um, I know that when we started to see the signs of a, um, a diminishing crop that I took it pretty personally and um, was questioning the choices that we'd made um, throughout the year and the orchard. Um, but um, you can see that um, there's so many different uh, methods that have been tried to um, change um alter the course of the uh, the yield um, through different farms throughout different climates um, across Australia. Um, and um, there really is just sort of a, a lack of um, overall success. Um, by no means um, is it a disaster by any means. There will certainly be um, mangoes available. Mangoes will be making their way down from Ord Valley and mangoes available throughout the Top End, but um, certainly won't be um, tripping over them in the shopping aisles.
6: Have you had any discussions around what, a price per tray might be looking like?
5: Uh, no, and it's still probably a little bit too early to um, to go down that avenue. We um, we know where our sort of break-even costs are, and we're hopeful that we'll get above that. Um, and we will see how we go as the season progresses. But, um, yeah, we're not too sure yet. It's all still a little bit too raw and early to um, to fully um, be committing to, to, to what was going to happen in a few right. weeks' time.
3: Luke McMullen, he's a mango grower from the Ord Valley. He was catching up with Alice
7: Marshall. 22
3: past 12.
7: You're with Belinda Varaschetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA.
3: An update from the newsroom isn't far away at half past 12 and then checking the weather right around the state. First, though, the Armand Board of Australia has thrown its support behind a push to change the way the varroa mite pest is tackled. The parasite was detected in New South Wales more than a year ago, and the eradication strategy has seen millions of bees euthanised and thousands of hives put under movement restrictions. But the Australian Honeybee Industry Council and the Victorian Aperis Association want to abandon efforts to eradicate varroa mite. And Armoured Board Chief Executive Tim Jackson also thinks it's time to admit defeat and switch to a management
7: plan. The Arm Board of Australia agrees that uh, the time has arrived for transition to management.
8: And what's formed that view for you?
7: Uh, just the compelling evidence being presented by the New South Wales DPI on the, the number of detections, the social licence across that uh, has been dwindling based on the, um, on the Kempsey outbreak largely, which has been really disappointing given the amount of work that's been done by New South Wales DPI and the beekeeping community over the last twelve months to try and get on top of Barroa.
8: Has it also been influenced by the fact that you obviously have almond orchards that are in those uh, red and purple zones, especially in the, near the in the Riverina, and they would be unable to be accessed by bees for several years if eradication program kept going on.
7: Well, no, it's more to do with the the, the technical viability. Like we've been guided, we've been sticking to the eradication path even after the the red zones were identified in our industry. But it it was largely around the fact that it was no longer technically feasible because longer term uh, eradicating Varroa would have been the far better outcome than uh, than management.
8: Is the almond industry and the wider industry ready to manage Varroa in Australia?
7: They've done it everywhere else, Emma, in the world. The the transition to management has been a fairly smooth process. It's been costly. It costs beekeepers and pollination industries such as ours more money to pollinate. But we're the only place in the world where that doesn't happen. So I've got no reason to believe a country as good as ours can't manage it pretty well.
8: And speaking of cost, the almond Board is obviously contributing quite a bit to the eradication process or the, the way they're managing Varroa at the moment. Has that come into your decision at all?
7: Not really. We were committed to, to trying to eradicate it. And the fact that we're actually contributing such a significant amount under the EPPRD obligations just underlines our commitment to biosecurity.
3: Armand Board CEO Tim Jackson with Emma Field. 25 past 12. And if you've been into Coles in the last week or so, I wonder if you notice that the supermarket has raised the price of its milk by 10 cents a litre. Last week Coles just quietly lifted the price of its 2 litre milk from $3.10 to $3.30. And that price is a fair bit higher than the much publicised dollar per litre milk that Coles and other supermarkets use to get you in the door. Farmer and President of Australian Dairy Farmers, Rick Gladego, is cautiously welcoming the news.
9: Oh, look, it, it is as long as it's flowing right down through the whole chain as well, uh, that it's not just profiteering by Coles, but also noting that uh, Coles is paying probably a fairly good farm gate price at the moment, as it is. But for them to recognise that you know, everybody needs to make hopefully make some money out of this game and, and, like I said, as long as it flows back down through the chain. But you know, dollar seventy is still cheap and it's just a pity they didn't do this 10 years ago and we might have more milk in Australia.
1: Does it lock in higher prices then for producers going forward?
9: Well, everyone's got a... Well, the majority of people have a... A contract only for 12 months, so up until the end of next June, there might be the odd two or three-year contract floating around. So, that's still a bit hard to say as to what that means in the in the long term. But uh, in the short term, you you know, it's certainly good.
1: You've criticised Coles heavily in the past. In fact, you were on our show last week calling for the ACCC to block their purchase of factories. Coles has gone it alone here. They've gone ahead of Aldi, ahead of Woolworths in lifting their price of milk to higher levels than the rival supermarkets. Is this a case where you have to pat them on the back?
9: I think it's a case where Coles might finally be starting to feel the pressure a bit of going, well, if we want to have a nutritious fresh milk product on the shelf, we're going to actually have to pay for it. And have they really realised the damage that the dollar milk did for 11, 12 years. Maybe it's coming back to bite. But uh, truth will be seen in the long term of will they keep this up and what that means to farm gate price.
3: President of Australian Dairy Farmers, Rick Gladigo with Warwick Long. Cole says we have reluctantly raised the price of Cole's own brand milk by 10 cents a litre due to ongoing cost increases in the supply chain. Cole says we don't take the decision to raise prices lightly, particularly because of the increased cost of living pressures faced by our customers. 28 past 12. Shortly off to the newsroom for an update. First, though, Australia's livestock traceability system is set to get a $22.5 million makeover. The federal government money will go to the MLA-owned Integrity Systems Company, which will redesign the 23-year-old National Livestock Identification System, or NLIS database. Integrity Systems Acting CEO Joe Quigley hopes the upgrade will result in a more user friendly database that will serve industry a long way into the future.
10: The current platform has served us really well in those 23 years and is still doing its job, um, meeting the needs of industry and government and being able to to track livestock right across Australia. Um, But we recognise that there's many new technologies out there that can really help us to uplift particularly the user experience um, so that it's far easier for for livestock producers and the supply chain to um, record information, submit information, retrieve information from the platform. Um, And we're really looking at ways in which we can Make it far more interoperable, so that it can talk to other systems that we know are being used right across the industry. So, creating that seamless experience um, and and really leveraging the technology to deliver, um, I guess, a world class traceability platform.
3: Joe Quigley, acting CEO of Integrity Systems Company, who's just received twenty two and a half million dollars from the federal government to build a new national livestock traceability platform. Uh, she was speaking to Alice Marshall. It is half past 12 here on the Country Hour and Tabarak al Jarood in the studio with the news headlines.
11: In the headlines, WA's housing minister is calling for the community housing sector to come up with innovative ideas to add more homes to the market. John Kerry says while WA has lagged behind other states in taking advantage of community housing, it's an area he wants to focus on. He's announced the opportunity for providers to bring project ideas to government at any time rather than having to wait for official grant or tender processes. The Australian Council of Social Service says an indexation increase for Australians on income support will do little to ease cost of living pressures. From tomorrow, the unemployment payment will rise from $50 a day to 54 while youth allowance will increase from $40 to 43 And both major political parties have renewed calls for respectful debate in the remaining weeks of the Voice to Parliament referendum after a heated protest in Adelaide. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Opposition Leader Peter Dutton says Australians need to show respect to each other, regardless of their position on the proposed Indigenous advisory body. More news at one.
3: Thank you to Barak, 29 to
7: 1. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
3: Very shortly, taking a look around the crops here in Western Australia, heading to the south coast where there's been, well, quite a lot of rain really early on in the growing season and that's given growers in that part the chance to do some reseeding. And in some cases, they've only just finished that reseeding. So interesting times this season because I mean obviously a lot of growers are now gearing up for harvest. We'll also take a little poke around the northern ag area where quite a contrast to what's going on in the south of the state. They've been desperate for rain pretty much all season. It has been a difficult growing season so just keeping an eye on what's going on there too. So Checking in on the south coast and heading to the north of the growing region shortly. And just before one, off to mouche for the results of the sheep market. Right now, Caroline Crow is here from the Bureau of Meteorology. And Caroline, just looking at the southwest land division and the forecast period, doesn't look like there's a lot of rain about.
10: No, that's right, Belle. Uh, there's a weak front scraping the south coast today, which is uh, bringing some showers. Very light, though, uh, in regards to the falls, less than sort of a millimetre, um, through through the even on the west coast and south coast from about Inyaba through to around Meriden and, and down to the south coast, um, and then over the next couple of days we start looking at a more spring-like pattern. So the ridge is going to push through and push those showers towards the south coast coming into tomorrow, and then on Thursday there's a trough deepening down the west coast. Now that trough does look as though uh, we could see some uh, mid-level thunderstorms from it uh, through parts of the southwest land division. So that's sort of from looking at uh, around the, in the Abba area across to sort of Yalgoo, Payne's Fine, down through to Southern Cross, down towards the south coast, but away from the south coast, and then sort of um, circling around towards the west coast, um, but mostly away from that west coast south of Perth as well. So it's kind of inland parts of the southwest land division some of those northern parts, but um, not expecting uh, much rainfall out of it at at all um, if we do get a thundery shower um, coming through and potentially there is that uh, chance of getting some dry lightning. Um, Along with um, that spring light pattern and the trough, we get those northeasterly winds and they usually pick up a little bit. So Thursday morning we can see the winds pick up from the north and bringing some warmer air down as well. So we will see some warming temperatures, particularly through northern and eastern parts of the southwest land division. On Thursday, coming into Friday, the trough becomes mobile and starts to move east. So those uh, thundery showers will uh, contract east with the trough and uh, clear western parts ahead of the next cold front. Once again, weak cold front um, just scraping the southwest corner on Saturday, bringing um, the extent of the showers is from about uh, Durian Bay across through to Hopedown and along the uh, east uh, south coast east to Esperance. Once again, just mainly in that southwest corner is where most of those falls are going to be, Belle.
3: And then looking into northern and eastern parts, how's it looking?
10: Yeah, it's, it's pretty clear and sunny through uh, northern and eastern parts, Bell. Uh, Belle. uh dominated by sort of east easterly wind regime, warming temperatures uh, through those northern and eastern parts. We could see just some showers along the south coast or that Eucla coast uh, coming into today and tomorrow, uh, very light falls. And as that trough moves east on Friday, a uh, possible chance of that thunderstorm through um, parts of that south, uh, so the south southeast of the Gascoigne into southern parts of the Goldfields and reaching just into the Eucla.
3: And then the warnings this afternoon?
10: Uh, Fairly quiet on the warning side, Bell. There is a coastal wind warning uh, and that's for uh, the Ningaloo and Gascoyne coast uh, and also down through the Albany and Esperance coast.
3: Thank you so much, Caroline. 25 to 1. In the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, there's been no rain over 5 millimetres across the state's northern and eastern areas. And there's just been a little bit in the southwest land division. In the southwest of the state, Beetle up 7, Darden up 5, Pemberton 5, and Walpole Forestry had 6. And then in the central wheat belt, Beacon Arrow had 12 in the gauge. Well, speaking of the seasonal conditions, let's just take a look around the Esperance port zone along the state's south coast, where some growers have only just finished seeding, which is very late in the season. And as you would know, there are some growers who are now just, you know, preparing to harvest the crop. Now, while crops further north of the state, so around the Geraldton port zone... They're looking at crops that have been, well, they've been desperate for rain all season really. But along the south coast, heavy rain early in the season had the crops pretty much waterlogged. Agronomist Monica Field says that's encouraged some farmers in the region to reseed their paddocks.
12: We've had some pretty wet areas that essentially mostly are failed canola crops. And so I guess to get some cover and also probably try and use some moisture, there's been a fair chunk of barley in particular go in on that coastal sand plain.
13: So it, does it seem to be that, that coast, you know, south of the highway that, that is seeding or are there some bits a little bit further north?
12: Uh, there's a few bits a little bit further north and up into Neridoc, I guess, but not too far up. There's also been areas where people just don't want to have to do the whole process again and get the cedar out and get ready harvest in potentially January. So there's also some areas that will just be basically a wet fallow (laughs) really.
13: Mm. Because I was going to say you know seeding in September what is the end game there? I mean will some farmers harvest this?
12: Best case scenario yes. So the last couple of years there's obviously been quite a lot of success with this later seeding with our very nice cool wet springs we've had and so the weather going forward will be the biggest determiner of yield potential but yeah, we should still be able to get like at least get that cover, get a stubble there for the following year, really. And it's also been a few people's opportunity to ameliorate some paddocks that they're trying to sort some issues out.
13: What is the yield potential of crop sown this late, and where have farmers been able to get seed from? Because I know it was hard at seeding time, let alone yeah. this time of year.
12: I mean, I guess there's usually a fair bit of barley around, and there definitely has been some just move around where areas haven't gone into barley for the last couple of years as well. The yield potential is a big range. Like there was there's obviously been some trial work done in the last couple of years and, you know, some of the trials got up to five and six tonne, which is obviously best case scenario, but it could be down as low as probably one and a half. Yeah, just having such a short time to accumulate that biomass and yield potential will just be weather. Like moisture is not limiting at the moment. There's actually probably some areas that are still a little bit wet. And there might be some burst spots as well, but it'll be what the temperatures do, I think, going forward.
13: Is this the latest? You've you've seen it in the past few years?
12: Yeah, very much so. Because there's probably been guys actually trying to seed it for nearly a month and physically not being able to seed it because of wet conditions or follow-up rain and the chance of bursting. So it's definitely pushed a little bit later than even last year and the year before, I think.
13: Do you feel like this is a trend that that will continue? I mean, farmers are going to try anything, aren't they? But is this something that that you think, you know, has had that little bit of success?
12: Yes and no. I think, yeah, as a salvage, it's something that just might happen depending on conditions. We have probably not had the wettest year, but we've had very, very wet months and then follow-up rain that's really hurt um, a lot of crops on those coastal strip. But that amelioration and some type of crop in a later timing when there's more moisture and less wind is becoming attractive to people as well because we've, you know, we quite often have windy maize and difficult conditions. So if it's claying or spading or some of those more aggressive kind of opportunities, they might be a fit for people going forward.
13: As you say, being very wet on that sand plain, but then you sort of don't have to travel too far north into the Mallee and farmers are actually needing moisture.
12: Yeah. Yeah, very much so. It's, yeah, we would have liked a little bit more to come last week with that wind. Um, and we could definitely do with more through that whole Mallee zone really to try and finish crops and get to some yield potential we'd like to get to. And I guess, you know, people will say it was always like this. There just wasn't as much cropping, but this, the high rainfall cropping zone of Esperance, I think has really, really expanded and we will go forward with the capacity to move water. That's probably the biggest thing. <laughs>
13: um, we're, as you say, seeing farmers as you drive along the highway still seeding and then we're also seeing some that have started swathing as well. It's, it's very uh, unusual. It's a bit of a wild year. <laughs> Farm
3: and General Agronomist Monica Field with Tara DeLangraft. 22-1 further north... As we've been saying, it is a very different story. Juliette MacDonald is Deputy Chair of the Western Panel of the Grains Research and Development Corporation. The panel has just finished a spring tour of the Wheat belt, visiting trial sites and grower groups from Conon 160 kilometers northeast of Perth, to Yuna, 80 kilometers northeast of Geraldton. Juliet says it's important to visit growers who've had a difficult growing season
14: you can't grow a lot of crop with less than 100 mils of rain and even some of the trials we looked at you can't see any expression of treatments i think we probably got to the point where it's about 120 or 130 mils of rain you actually need to grow enough crop to express treatments within the trials but we didn't we didn't want to shy away from it we knew it was there and we wanted to acknowledge it and we wanted to catch up with the growers they've got to live that um and we've got to support them through that you know we can all grow the big crops in the good years it's the poor years that that are the ones we really need to avoid spending too much money and the risk, I guess, in those seasons. It's one thing to know it academically, and isn't it? It's another thing to see plants that just are not flourishing without water. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, to the credit of some of the research providers, their tenacity and willingness to try and get some data out of a year like this because they know the growers want that data. Um, they want to have a look at it in those really poor years and see what they can get out of it. Was anything doing particularly well on such a small amount of rain? Probably not where it was really bad, Lucinda, no. Like, canola was struggling to, you know, even if it had flowered and had pods on it, it was going to struggle to pot up. My favourite quote from the whole week was actually on Tuesday because we had the rain expected on the Wednesday and I guess we all had hopes and dreams of a double digit with a two or, or maybe a three in front of it and that would actually make a difference. But the quote that I got on the Tuesday was, I'm looking forward to tomorrow and after that i'm looking forward to next year but you did get wet on on (laughs) wednesday we got very wet um on wednesday which was lovely and you know i quite enjoyed standing out in the rain but we had the wind before the rain and so we had a presenter who um, yeah struggled through a soil pit um so wayne parker from deeperd in geraldton he struggled through a soil pit with the sand blowing sideways did an extremely good job and then we, uh, we went to a trial site out at Jim Hills at Aeney Abba, um and Matt Willis from Bayer actually managed to talk through the rain while everyone was huddling and trying to hide behind other people. Uh, what were some of the issues that growers raised with you? Oh, a myriad, a myriad, to be honest, um, Lucinda. So uh, obviously the rainfall was front and foremost for most. But canola establishments probably, you know, we, we had looked at a lot of trials and so they sort of brought the issues to the fore at those places. Soil amelioration is a massive one and, you know, there's some interesting things. We're at the forefront of soil amelioration in, in WA with our sandy paddocks because we have whole paddocks. And, you know, there's interesting things happening now. We're continually learning. It's probably going to be the last frontier, I think, you know, what's underneath our feet. So lots to learn about those sorts of discoveries. And then canola establishment's just been tricky in that low rainfall area. Sometimes even in the high rainfall area, you've got you know heat and crusting in the lower rainfall, and you've got non-wetting and fluffy soils in the in the higher rainfall in the in the West Midlands. So they're probably one of the you know two of the main things that really popped up consistently over the over the tour. But we saw some great um, you know there are some good crops to the north uh, along the west, and certainly you know we went to a fantastic farming systems research trial site. Uh, near Northampton, uh, that's been set up by Martin Harry's at DeepHerd. That's looking really tidy and going to be some fantastic outcomes from that trial. They've set it up extremely well with phases so that you've got both, you know, if you're doing a wheat lupin rotation, they're having it look at both wheat and lupin in 2023. Otherwise, you get that skip year and you can't work out what might have happened. And Juliet, how are things looking at your place in Karoo? Yeah, so we've got a place east and a place west. Um, and uh, out east, it's heavy salmon gum gimlet country, uh, and we just haven't had enough rain out there to really let the plants have a go at it. So that's looking pretty poor. I'm not really too sure where we'll end up. To be honest with that one, could be with nothing. Um, and then out west, we've just been getting drip fed at times. We've certainly lost potential, but we are very grateful for the rainfall that we've had. And you know, we've we've got a bit of pasture and we've got. Some good-looking wheat and lupins have managed to continue to flower and pod up, even though we've had those terrifically hot days, which normally would drop the flowers and uh, abort the pods. So we're just hoping for some oats to come through, through this sort of hot weather, and if we can cut some hay, and that would be awesome for, for our livestock going over the
3: summer. GRDC Western Panel Deputy Chair Juliet MacDonald with Lucinda Joyce. Quarter to one here on the Country Hour. Just before one, it's off to Mushay again. Today it was the cattle being sold yesterday. Today it is the sheep. And Terry Birkin will go through the market details for you just before one. Tens of thousands of cattle in northern Australia are no longer suited to the live export trade with Indonesia, with exporters told not to ship. Any stock with skin lesions. After raising concerns about lumpy skin disease, Indonesia lifted its suspensions on Australia's live cattle and buffalo trade earlier this month, but only after striking a deal with Australia, which included several new biosecurity requirements. Ashley James loaded a shipment out of Darwin on the weekend and says around 30 to 40 percent of the cattle offered up by stations were rejected.
15: So first of all, it was, it was still a difficulty. The department is still requiring that exporters don't put animals in quarantine with any skin lesions that hopefully won't cause problems in Indonesia with cattle that they think have LSD. So this made it really difficult on station. We kicked out. 30 to 40 percent of cattle that was presented to us which six six months ago wouldn't have been a problem going on the boat and that's why i thank all the vendors that sold to us because i know it wasn't easy um it's not easy for the exporter either Uh, but unfortunately we just have to abide by these rules until the two governments can work out a plan of attack for future shipments
1: Right, so you've gone to stations to get cattle for your boat and have had to reject thirty to forty percent of them because of skin lesions.
15: Yeah, that's correct, Matt, under the current policy, so Acel, which is I guess the Bible for exporting, nothing's changed there, so the grey area is still still an unknown. But unfortunately, we've had to go hard on station for any lesions because what we can't afford is to have, you know, 100, 200, 300 cattle sitting in a quarantine with nowhere to go because really they don't have any commercial value once, once they've been kicked out by the department's vets.
1: And so you, your experience actually involved having a handful of cattle that were rejected by the vet. How did that unfold and what happened?
15: Yeah, so once the cattle came in to the quarantine, the quarantine then runs an eye over them as they come off trucks. They picked out another seven or eight of the cattle coming off that they thought might have a problem. So they were then penned up in a separate yard. Uh, We were able to get uh, the government vet to run her eyes over them, of which she was okay with you know, five of them, and then there were two there that she didn't like, so they were rejected from the shipment.
1: And what do you do with them? Uh,
15: there's not a lot we can do with them. Matt, I guess they're going to go down to bachelor if the abattoir will take them.
1: And what's classed as a skin lesion? Uh, this is the grey
15: area. Yeah. So can be a cut, ringworm. Part of the difficulty is that anything raised on the skin is questionable, then the grey area is, well, is it getting better or is it getting worse? Um, the hope is that, you know, if there's hair starting to grow through the lesion, then they'll accept them. But if you're drafting and you're leaving cattle in because you think there's a bit of hair coming through, you know, you might get caught with them. They they might be the 50-50 cattle in quarantine.
1: I think it's important in an interview like this to, to, to maybe reset and say that Australia does not have... Lumpy skin disease, but uh, certainly the, the trade with Indonesia, it just sounds tricky at the moment, Ashley James. What would be your take on how many cattle are in northern Australia right now that have suddenly fallen out of spec for the live trade to Indo?
15: Oh, man, it'd be thousands. We only loaded a little shipment of 1,200 cattle, of which all up on property, we rejected four to 500 of them to get the 1200. So if you work those numbers out, it's not
1: pretty. Have you got uh, any thoughts on what cattle producers are now doing? They've all of a sudden got all these cattle that can't go to window. Can they go to other live export markets?
15: My understanding is that other countries, uh, they can go, that the vets aren't so hard like on Malaysia um, and anywhere else that you can send them, Vietnam. But Indonesia's still a rocky road with this, and until we can get some clarity from the department, I don't see things changing in the short term.
1: Exporters and importers are meeting this week in Jakarta, yeah? What would be your hopes for that meeting?
15: Oh I, I hope I hope that um, you know, we can get, get the prices up in Indonesia. As far as LSD goes, I don't think that there's anything that's going to come out of this meeting right. um, at the moment. It's purely government to government. So importers will be telling us they don't want to receive any cattle that might cause them problems in the feedlots. So as they're the customer, that's what we have to try and give them.
1: So how do you see the next few months you know, shaping up?
15: I'm not really sure, Matt. I think it's going to be as it has been for the last few months, I think exporters will still be hard on on cattle on farm or on station when we're drafting them because the last thing any of us want is, you know, hundreds of cattle sitting in a quarantine with no home. So we just we just have to wait and see what the two governments can work out between themselves. But what- as you said, we don't have LSD, which is one of the pains that exporters are coming in, facing at the moment. So why have the rules changed um, when we don't have it?
1: And what would be your advice to cattle producers who are mustering and looking to sell stock into the live export trade like they've always done? Well,
15: I think they're just going to have to take this on the chin in the short term as exporters are having to do. I know it's no fun, but it's one of the things that we have, you know, we have to face Um, and I can't see it changing in at least the next couple of months. So we'll see what the flood pl- what the floodplain brings um, and what our governments can work out. And hopefully it'll be relaxed um, as we get towards the end of the year.
3: Ashley James, General Manager of the Live Export Company NACC, speaking to Matt Bran. Eight minutes to one. Andrew Stewart is a livestock agent based in Broome. And rural reporter Alice Marshall gave him a call.
6: Andrew, what was your response to just hearing that, that tens of thousands of cattle in northern Australia are no longer suited to the live export trade with Indonesia, with exporters being told not to ship any stock with skin
16: lesions? Look, I, I'm not so quite understand where that's coming from. I mean, this year, particularly with the big wet season that we've had, we've been focused on pulling anything out that's got fly bite or anything regardless i mean this year we might have been going a little bit harder than normal but in our day-to-day drafting and selecting for boats if it's not us it's the, the buyers that have been doing that so we've been pretty vigilant on on skin as it is for all of the season really
6: are you hearing anything specifically from from exporters and buyers from Indonesia, that this is something coming specifically from Indonesian markets, not markets, say, Vietnam or Malaysia?
16: No, but from our side, it doesn't matter which country we're exporting or buying for, we've just been focused on making sure that there is no issues with the skin because it's been such a focus. So if, you know, as I said, if it's got fly bite or some old ringworm from from last year or whatever, raised skin, well, we've been knocking it out on station just to be precautionary, anyhow. So yeah, I'm not quite sure where where it's all coming from, but again, it's the first I've heard of it there when you just ask, so.
6: And what do you make of that figure, that 30 to 40% of cattle offered up by stations being rejected going to the Darwin uh, port? What do you make of that?
16: Oh uh, yeah, that number's alarming. But yeah, again, as I said, I, I, I'd have to find out some more information on that, but uh, there's no way now we've been knocking that many cattle out over here on that basis. Not at all.
3: Andrew Stewart, he's a livestock agent with Nutrien in Broom. Six to one. Now, if you're a sheep producer, I wonder if you caught the show yesterday. And if you missed it, uh, you should get along and have a listen to the podcast on the ABC Listen app or on the WA Country Hour website because the first half of the show was really dedicated to the big issue of low prices that are being paid for sheep at the moment, so go and check out the show if you missed it yesterday. And that situation really has farmers getting creative to try and avoid making a loss or having to shoot sheep. Instead of selling at the sale yards, some are selling direct to consumers. George Beck farms in South Australia's southeast and recently he's been selling boxes of lamb on Facebook with a portion of the proceeds going to his local footy and netball clubs.
17: Bit of a short term thing, we had some uh, good lambs that were left over that we'd sort of hung on to and reshawn and planned to put them into the market, hoping it would correct itself. But it's continued to slide, so I thought, um, with customers sort of still really feeling the heat with the cost of living stuff, it was an opportunity to put some lamb back into the local market. It wasn't going to cost us anything, and with the addition of a $20 a box, like whole lamb box donation back to the football club, it was sort of a short-term win situation for everyone, and a bit of a cost recovery exercise for us, and a lot of interest. There was a lot of interest, actually. the The first day, particularly, we had some lambs that well, they were hoggets. Actually, they'd just cut their teeth, so they were are not even fully formed uh, hogget teeth. And in the market last week, uh, they probably would have only been worth sort of sixty, sixty-five dollars. And, uh, you know, as a, a finished lamb, a product like that should sort of be making around 220 to 250. So that was a bit of a hit. So they didn't really owe us anything. So I thought I'd uh, see uh, what the local demand was like and put up an ad on Facebook for lamb in the box, sort of 25 to 30 kilos. For I think those ones range from sort of 180 to 220 and worked out at 679 a kilogram. So definitely not making money on those ones. And uh, we're offering lamb now too at $12 a kilogram. So that's in the box, either a whole lamb or a side. That's with the money going back, some of the money, $20 a box going back to the club too. So people have been
4: taking it as an opportunity to stock up and save some money.
17: Yeah, that's right. And I think it's a good idea if a couple of people can get together if they don't have the freezer space and uh, divvy up the cuts uh, when the box arrives and uh, fill their freezers.
13: So this was just a limited run for the moment, but it is... Is it something you consider doing more often?
17: Uh, I don't think it would be a long-term plan for us. It is quite time-consuming, but um, if the market's going to be tough for 12 or 18 months, it it could be just another little uh, side outlet for us to siphon some of the better quality lambs off and get killed locally. It's a local works and it's a local butcher uh, doing the killing and processing, and um, it's an opportunity for local people to try some of the region's good, good produce.
3: South Australian prime lamb farmer George Beck with Elsie Adamo. Two minutes to one to the markets and 5,382 sheep and lambs were penned for sale at the Moucher market today. That's down 2,287 on last week's yarding. Terry Birkin, hello. How did it go today?
18: Hi, Belinda. Numbers were back today mainly due to a reduction in volumes of older sheep. Lamb supplies were similar to last week, and approximately 50% of those were new season lambs, mostly in lighter condition. There were a lot of fresh faces in the buying field keenly bidding on stores for feedlots and paddocks, keeping the market overall firm for recent weeks. New season light frame store lambs were selling up to $60, while air freight lambs sold from $50 to $81, and trade weights returned $70 to $105 ahead. Old season store lambs were selling up to $49, air freight lambs from $35 to $62, and heavy lambs realised $80 a head. Merino lambs up to 18 kilos ranged from $20 to $49, while the best ram lambs reached $61 a head. The few merino with the hoggets penned made $24 to $45, while merino ewe hogget's returned $26 to $50, and crossbred Hoggets sold to $67 a head. Boney ewes made $10 to $22, while medium to heavy ewes were selling up to $50, and slaughter rams sold from $5 to $36 a head. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at New Shade.
3: Terry, thank you for going through that. Tomorrow we'll pop into Katanning for the results of the Katanning sheep market. Good to talk to you. The news is next.
12: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.